today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends coming up on today's podcast. More than half of Ontario municipalities have opted in for brick-and-mortar pot shops. What's the advantage and disadvantage of both? Everyone in the States is kind of confused about Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, and what his role is. Has he become unhinged, or is it just to distract? Plus, China and Canada, the saga continues. Now, our Canadian ambassador to China is giving them tips on how not to be extradited. Is that the answer? It's all coming up. More than half of Ontario municipalities have opted in for brick-and-mortar pot shops. Who did? Who didn't? Uh, What does this say? Is there a benefit? Why different positions? And uh, shortages. Some saying it could go on for two years. To talk more about all of this, Michael Armstrong, PhD, Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, uh, Business Brock University, or Bidness. Uh, and he is with us now. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to join you. So your thoughts on who's in, who's out, any surprises here for you? Um, I don't think there's anything that particularly surprised me in the sense that uh, these are political decisions. Um I'm not an expert on politics, so I'll leave that for my political science colleagues, but uh, every politician has got their own constituents. They're thinking about their own uh, future. Uh, on the one hand, what's good for the city, but also in their hand, okay, what do I have to do to get reelected? So you're going to get a mix of uh, approaches and opinions. Um, one pattern that was kind of interesting uh, was uh, Toronto itself opted in, but a number of the communities around Toronto uh, voted to opt out. Um, now, each of them might have had their own motivations, but uh, it does kind of look like a bit of uh, suburban nimbyism. Uh, they don't want to keep that horrible stuff out of their nice, respectable suburbs. Leave that for the gritty big city kind of thing. <laughs> so uh, does it depend on what your neighbor is doing, on what you do? Uh, in the sense that uh, whether they're going to actually smoke the cannabis? No, no, I didn't mean that in regard to the uh, municipalities. For example, if you're sitting next to Toronto, well, I don't need one because they got one and, you know. There could be some of that, yes. Uh, I think, unfortunately, I think some of the cases there's still, uh, I mean, there's still a significant minority of the population who really doesn't want cannabis legal at all. They don't want anywhere near them. Uh, And so this is one of the few... uh, opportunities they had to kind of voice their displeasure. They can't uh, undo the federal legislation that authorized it. They can't undo the provincial legislation that's going to govern it. Uh, but, hey, they can put their foot down and say, we don't like it uh, with this muni- municipal level vote. Of course, it has no effect on whether people will actually use it in those communities. Uh, as you said, you know, people can just drive into downtown Toronto. A lot of them, in fact, probably pick it up on their commute uh, if they're working in the city. And, uh, of course, they can just keep getting it from their local illegal suppliers, uh, like many of them doing for, for years. Does it uh, fuel or start a cottage industry of delivery services? Well, there's certainly... We'll get you your pot into your, uh, you know, prohibition area. Absolutely. Uh, that's, that has been big business in California. Uh, over the last year, they legalized at the state level about a year ago, and... Uh, uh, 80% of their cities actually opted out, um, but all that meant is the other 20% got a lot of extra business because, mm. yes, delivery services started up. And, in fact, uh, California just legalized those, uh, recognized that, hey, these exist, okay, let's, let's, let's allow for it. 
Sort of like a pot Uber. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, dial 1-800-whatever-the-number-is and uh, uh, deliver it to your door. You were talking about how this was a way for municipalities to opt out. I think Vic Fideli, uh, you know, mentioned he used the comparison of of uh, uh, the liberals and and I know you don't want to get political, um, but uh, how people couldn't opt in or out of wind turbines and the divisiveness that it caused. He said at least we're giving people uh, the option to get in or to get out. But can a a town stop one of these cottage industries from setting up shop there. Like, for example, if you've got if you've got a place where they're not allowing it, can can an independent person uh, start a business there, delivering into that town from that town? I'll well, go get you your stuff and bring it to you here in your dry town. In terms of the legalities, ooh, I haven't dug into the, the you know, I've seen into the Cannabis Act uh, and all those various criminal. Uh, uh, do these do these do these uh, uh, delivery systems have to be legalized by the government? Well, it's not so much whether they're legalized as much as how did the how did the federal government define what what counts as quote selling cannabis unquote? Uh, if the delivery mm. service is considered to be selling cannabis, right, then that would fall under provincial law, and provincial law says okay, you have to have licenses, you have to have stores, blah 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 blah. Uh, but if the lawyers can figure out a way to say, well, they're technically not selling it, they're just delivering it to someone uh, without ever technically owning it, then uh, I suppose that would, that would be legal. It would be no different than any other delivery company. They don't purchase the product and sell it to the customer. That that transaction is done between, uh, you know, the buyer and the seller. The transportation company just takes it from point A to point B. Yeah, uh, in fact... Uh, you know, as we're speaking of it... Uh, we I might be coming up with an industry right here on the air. That's right. The Scott Thompson <laughs> Pot Delivery <laughs> that's uh, it. Service. Well, you better talk to your lawyer and make sure you word it very carefully. Mm. Um, yeah, if, you, if, you, if they could make it work so somehow, you know, the customer logged into a website, the order was technically placed at the store, but the yeah. delivery service brought it, uh, it might work. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, a lot of legal uh, revenue to be made figuring that one out. All right. What uh, what comes with opting in? What 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 comes with opting out? What what do you lose opting out? Well, the the kind of the, I'm not sure funny or ironic thing is in the short term it's not going to really matter very much at all uh, because in the short term, well, right now we have no stores. As of April first, we're only supposed to have 25 across the whole province. Uh, so over the next you know 12 months until December at least according to the current provincial plan, uh, because they keep changing their plans. But according to the current provincial plan, we're only going to have 25 stores between April and December. Uh, So you know the Hamilton area, all of western, what they're calling western region, which includes us here in Niagara, uh, I think there's only seven stores that are authorized to set up. Um, So a community that opts in may get, you know, if it's someplace small like St. Catharines, Niagara Falls, may get one, Hamilton may get two or three, if they opt out, they get zero. So it's not, in the short term, a huge difference. Longer term, uh, well, of course, uh, it could have a bigger influence because now we're thinking, okay, we'll eventually have thousands of stores across Ontario. Um, and if you are a kind of a dry community, you're not going to have any of those stores, any of that sales tax revenue. Uh, but you will still have all of the uh, unfortunate side effects of cannabis consumption because you're residents will still be using it. 
you still have to deal with impaired driving, potentially. Uh, you still have to deal with underage smoking and all the other stuff uh, that comes along with that. What about government support? Uh, well, that's, that's one of the incentives to opt in right now is the uh, provincial government said, okay, we'll give you funding uh, for cannabis enforcements and such, but uh, when you get more if you opt in, you get less if you opt out. So that, that has been cited by a lot of the town councils as, as one of their motivators, kind of saying, well, you know, even if we don't really like this, let's at least get the money to deal with the issues uh, because they're coming anyway. Really, the only rule is, is once you opt in, you can't opt out. Isn't that correct? That's right. And So I th- if you decide to do this later down the road and watch everybody else do it and make mistakes, then... And that's, and that's exactly what some councils have argued, or some politicians have argued, is yeah. low. let somebody else uh, do the initial trials. Uh, maybe we'll change our mind in a year or two. And in fact, I think a lot of councils will change their mind. Uh, as I said, right now, it's a question of whether you could have one store or not. But, uh, you know, two years from now, there's, if they start to think, well, you know, uh, to take my local region, for example, Niagara Falls opted in, but Niagara and the Lake, which is kind of a more of an upscale crowd, hmm. they opted out. Um, now, this year, that's going to make no difference because I don't think anyone was planning to set up a store there. But, they uh, could probably set up a store, but they'd have issues of how big their sign could be. <laughs> they have to conform to the scenic look of the exactly. Yeah. Uh, would anybody have been on that note? Would anybody have been surprised if Niagara and the Lake said, "Yeah, we'll take one"? Um, I mean, well, is there any surprise there? You, you know, they, then you get all kinds of little uh, local quirks. Like Niagara and the Lake technically goes almost all the way to the canal. Yeah. So you know, there's a big outlet mall. <laughs> uh, just off the highway. Yeah, it looks like it's St. Catharines, but that's actually Niagara and the Lake. Uh, yep. So the Outlet Mall, which gets all kinds of traffic and tourists, might actually not be a bad spot to put a cannabis shop. That is funny. All right, so um, anyway, that's an aside. What? Uh, so uh, anybody at any time can say uh, after a year or so or a few months, yeah, yeah, we're in. And then what happens to that process? What happens to that town? Well, then that town uh, now becomes fair game for setting up uh, cannabis shops. Uh, so, and at that point, they kind of lose control. And this is one of the things I think the politicians, the municipal politicians, do have a, a legitimate, legitimate complaint about, is they haven't been giving any zoning control at all on the location of these shops. Provinces said, okay, it has to be 150 meters away from a school, and Aside from that, there isn't very much uh, in the way of restrictions. There is kind of a, a vague uh, uh, rule that says, okay, there's 15 days for public comment. If there's some other issue related to, I think, public safety, uh, then that would be a reason to object to that particular location. Uh, but aside from that, uh, if they can get a, find a spot that's at least 150 meters from a school, it's fair game. Uh, what about uh, LCBO and beer store locations? Is that a part of their mandate? Is there is there restrictions on where they can be or, or municipalities, yes or no? How much control do they have uh, for those? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, of course, with the LCBO, it's a little bit different because it's uh, provincially run. So even if there was no official uh, law about zoning, uh, there would be certainly some informal communication between the uh, level of government of, 
know, okay, we don't really want you to put that story here. So there really is no disadvantage to, or, or I don't, if you're if you're a politician, is there a disadvantage to opting out now, with the option of getting back in? Uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, particularly for the smaller communities, which weren't likely to get one of the initial twenty-five stores anyway. It's sort mm. of a symbolic move, uh, and so maybe that was the motivation for some councillor votes. Uh, say, you know, okay, if this is a this is an easy way to to uh, uh, make a point without really costing much in terms of what the community gets. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, uh, as we said, you know, a year or two from now when there actually are significant numbers of stores around, uh, how many of these councils change their mind and opt in. Um, but there's all kinds of other changes coming, I'm sure, between now and then. Uh, any advantage to being one of the first, other than, I guess, you get a foothold? Well, you do get that foothold, and particularly, I think, you know, some of the larger communities, like Hamilton, if Hamilton had voted to opt out, and they were only one vote away from doing that, if I remember correctly, it was an 8-8 tie, wasn't it? Uh, if Hamilton opt, had opted out, uh, they are, you know, they're likely to get three or four of those initial stores to the region. So if they'd opted out, that would actually have been a fairly big uh, hole in the potential market. Um, so... It kind of depends on the community. The bigger ones where they could actually get a store, an opt-out decision would matter. Smaller ones, uh, it's more of a longer-term question. Um, so uh, what do you think the challenges are going to be for municipalities in the next year who have opted in? The challenges, uh, I think, will be the same whether they've opted in or, or opted out. Um, and, of course, keeping in mind that there will be there's some municipalities that didn't make a decision either way, and so by default, the province treats them as being opted in. Yeah, you had to make a request to opt out, correct? That's right. Yeah. So if you didn't make a request, you're, you're in. Uh, the challenges are mostly going to be non-business. Uh, the side effects of uh, uh, dealing with people who are using uh, the product now legally. Uh, the province has set fairly broad limits on where you can use it. You can smoke. You can't smoke it in a playground, but you can smoke it outdoors kind of thing. Um, you can't smoke it in a non-smoking building, but if uh, you can't smoke it while you're driving or operating a boat, but fairly open otherwise. So just figuring out, okay, how do we enforce smoking, non-smoking rules, uh, dealing with the impaired driving issues, uh, which is not a new issue, of course, because people already use the product. Now it's just a, it's a legal use. Um, so all those, uh, you know, social legal issues are things that the municipalities have to deal with. They actually have very little involvement in the, uh, the commerce side, uh, except once they actually get a store, then they have to deal with the business licenses and by law enforcement, all the things that come with that. How do cities like, for example, Hamilton, who have a lot of illegal shops operating right now, uh, how how are they going to deal with restricted numbers of of legal shops that move in, especially when the illegal dispensaries already have such a foothold? That's going to be one of the challenges, and that's one of the things I've, I've uh, been following a lot in news and have, uh, have written a couple op-eds about is uh, government has to keep in mind that they, this industry already exists. There are already those dispensaries. There are already... Uh, illegal places that grow the stuff, the, the guy down the street, or organized crime, depending on the context. Um, so 
So it's not like saying, oh, hey, we've got this uh, legal stop shop opening up. Uh, all the market's going to suddenly come to us. No, you have to compete mm. uh, for those sales. Uh, could this change government direction? Could this? Do you think that this is obviously a work in progress? It's absolutely a work in progress um, at all levels. Uh, so industry, government, retail, wholesale, production, this is all a moving uh, moving target. Uh, you know, we could do an interview in three months, and all, all, all kinds of things have changed. A year from now, all kinds of things will change. So uh, on the retail end, uh, competition against the illegal dispensaries, uh, black markets, which is, you know, one of the motivations of the federal government in the first place. So that means competing on price. Uh, and currently the uh, black market has a significant advantage there. Uh, average price, according to Stats Canada, is somewhere around 6 $7 a gram, whereas most of the legal shops in Canada are selling close to around $10 a gram. Uh, in terms of uh, the product, well, the legal product is actually probably uh, pretty good. At least it's labeled, it's tested, so you, you're pretty sure it doesn't have contaminants. So quality-wise, the legal product might have a bit of an advantage, uh, except that if you're currently a user and you've got a local source, you've kind of gotten used to, okay, this particular uh, weed does the effect that you want, if you now go to a legal supplier like the Ontario Cannabis Store website, it's kind of up to you now to figure out, okay, which of these 70 different products might actually be a good replacement for what I'm used to. And because the federal government doesn't allow very much in the way of advertising and promotion, yeah. it's very difficult for the legal industry to explain that. To, to and, and you know, you, communication. you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, uh, they're dealing with this much the same way they did prohibition way back when, when, uh, you know, I, I think this industry is far more advanced than, than what that was. I mean, similar, but, um, the, you know, I think the, uh, the genie's already out of the bottle on this, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's prohibition in terms of alcohol. It's not like nobody was drinking and then suddenly people start drinking. And, yeah. You know, it's questionable. Well, they've been drinking along, along and okay, let's let's legalize it so we can regulate it. Uh, so I think that's some of that same philosophy. Um, and yeah, you ha you have to compete with that existing industry. Um, uh, another thing you have to compete on is av availability, convenience. So if you only have you know one legal shop in all of the Niagara region or two legal stores in all of Hamilton, uh, that's not nearly as convenient as the 30 dispensaries uh, that apparently exist there or the however many unknown uh, guy down the street kind of suppliers that might be there. What so about what about short what about shortages? We're hearing lots of that. Last question here. We don't have much time. What about shortages? Uh, is that more government than black market? Uh, how concerned is government about that? Well, I don't think there are any shortages in the black market. Uh, all the shortages we're hearing about are on the legal side. Hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a question of we've got this new industry starting up, and um, the current bottleneck looks like it's probably uh, between the retailer and the producer. So the producers have quite a bit of cannabis stockpile. They've got like uh, 95 tons of raw cannabis uh, being dried, cured, in the process of being packaged, that kind of thing. Another uh, 25 or so tons of, of raw oil. Uh, the bottleneck seems to be getting that dry stuff processed, packaged, and out to the distribution 
network to the provincial wholesalers and the local retailers. So, uh, and they can't keep up with demand because the the initial capacity is just is just too small. So it's going to take several years, I think, to build that up, uh, just in terms of the quantities, but also in terms of figuring out uh, what particular products. Because it's one thing to say, okay, we've got a a ton of cannabis, a thousand kilograms, but is it the right thousand kilograms of the right products that people actually want to buy, hmm. as opposed to your okay, we took a random guess in October, oh, we got yeah, we got guessed right on this one, we guessed wrong on that one, and that's a standard retail problem. You know, which particular products do you stock in a grocery store or a clothing store? Michael Armstrong has been with us, PhD Associate Professor Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Sure, we'll chat again later. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter in regard to, uh, man, it just never ends for the President of the United States. Uh, and, you know, most of his own doing. But uh, now from uh, Rudy Giuliani, who said some uh, uh, weird things over the last uh, week or so, only to have uh, pull, only to pull them back. And now there's rumors flying out of uh, the White House that uh, some are a little upset at uh, the, the uh, free reign that he seems to have when chatting with the media. Uh, here's what he had to say recently, uh, I guess, which started all of this concern. No. Oh, okay. Uh, do we have it? We don't? Okay, we'll get that for you. Reporting about this oh, case is despicable. Mr. Mr. Mayor, false reporting is saying that nobody in the campaign had any contacts with Russia. False reporting is saying that there has been no suggestion of any kind of collusion between the campaign and any Russians. Because now you have Paul Manafort giving poll data I, I that winds said, up leading to this coincidence. Well, you just misstated my position. I never said there was no collusion between the campaign or between people in the campaign? Yes, I have, have no idea if there, I have not. I said the you, President of the United States. There is not a single bit of evidence the President of the United States committed the only crime you could commit here, conspired with the Russians to hack the DNC. First of all, there crime is not, is not day, the bar of accountability for a president. It's about what you knew, well, he didn't what was with right, Russia and either. what was wrong, and what did you deceive about. Those are going to be major deceive. considerations. The president did not. Well, he said nobody had any contact. Russian. Tons of Whatever people had contact. Nobody is. colluded. The guy running his campaign. He didn't say was nobody. working on an issue he at the same time didn't. as the convention. He said he didn't. He didn't say nobody. How would you know that nobody in your campaign? He actually did say that, Rudy. He said well, I nobody, said and then that. he said, as far and if as he said I know, that, he said it in a. Well, as far as he knows, that's true. <laughs> wow. Uh, let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News, based in Washington, and he's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Uh, do you ever get surprised at any of this, or do you just kind of, well, it's another work day for me down in Washington? Yeah, well, I mean, when Rudy Giuliani heads to the camera, we can always sit there and say, well, what's he going to say? Is he going to move the goalpost? Is he going to come back? Is he going to go forth? So, I mean, with him on TV, it's always kind of a brand new afternoon. How is the work of Rudy Giuliani being perceived and, and, and accepted in Washington? Well, I mean, you have to remember that Giuliani is the president's outside counsel, so he doesn't actually have any kind of conversation or speak on behalf of what's happening inside the White House, and that's why there's all this kind of kerfuffle happening within the president's close team inside the White House, because it's this outside advisor who's kind of taking the spotlight right here, but there are reports from inside the White House, according to the Associated Press, that uh, from, from a number of adv advisors rather close to the president, that he was actually mad himself at Giuliani's comments that was made uh, over the last couple of days 
days, basically by saying, look, this obscured kind of a, a victory that we were taking by uh, when around, uh, Robert Mueller's ca- special counsel made comments about the BuzzFeed article. Right. Uh, when Rudy Giuliani kind of came to the TV and started speaking again, the president, I guess, threw his hands up and said he's kind of muddying the waters here. So uh, is this many are questioning, is Rudy just off on his own tangent? Is he becoming unhinged? Is he is he not thinking? There's even people that have questioned his drinking. Uh, Is it that or is this a a purpose filled distraction? Well, I mean, nobody knows for sure except for both the president and Rudy Giuliani. There have been uh, kind of speculative reports that there's potentially an alcohol-related issue here, but Giuliani's denied that, saying, look, I'd like to have a drink at dinner, I'd like to have a drink with a cigar, but uh, alcohol's not kind of interfering with my day-to-day work. Uh, I mean, since he came on board in 2018, every time he approaches the media, it's kind of been this smoke and mirrors kind of thing where he kind of says one thing, changes the facts, the conversation changes, gives the president a new argument. So there's been a potential for a political tactic tactic with uh, the way that Rudy Giuliani speaks. But over the last couple of weeks, he's been kind of taking facts and taking information and spinning them further and further out of control and out of the grip of those close to the president in the White House, which is why I think you're going to see a concerted effort over the next couple of weeks, at least, to keep Giuliani out of the spotlight. So um, obviously, as you said, he's Trump's personal lawyer. He's not involved in the White House. At one, at what point does this become a conflict of interest? Is this the president say, saying, I need my own person outside of the White House to do as I tell, as I say, and not as they say? So when I put Rudy out there and, and, and lob a distraction, that's what he's to do. I mean, where is the conflict of interest between Trump's personal interests or lawyer in this case and that of the White House? Well, I think that's a fine line that, that that is potentially going to end up if it hasn't already been crossed. And I think that's why we're seeing potential investigations continue to spin out of control, because uh, we have a number of people that are inside and outside of the White House, oftentimes spinning two different stories. And all that does is kind of fuel investigators to say, well, we better f- uh, dig a little further to see if there's a potential conflict of interest or if there's a potential uh, new avenue that we need to follow down. I mean, every president has its own uh, personal counsel that's outside of the White House that takes care of things that are in a personal realm. Donald Donald Trump obviously had uh, a larger-than-life past before he was president, so he has quite a large uh, team of advisors and, and counsel that kind of deal with his life outside of the White House. But, I mean, we'll see in the days and weeks going forward if Rudy Giuliani doesn't actually approach the TV and is able to keep his mouth closed, uh, we'll potentially see you know a little less furor when it comes to the running around inside the White House. Uh, so when will we see any changes? What next? What happens now? Is all of a sudden uh, Rudy go dark, or what happens? Well, I mean, look, the, the president is, it can tell Rudy Giuliani to not go on TV and Rudy Giuliani can listen. But, I mean, it's up to the networks whether or not they're reaching out to him, whether or not they're reaching out uh, to say, can we have him on our shows? And we'll see if he actually listens. But, you know, the president has already said, well, look, we need to get him out of the spotlight for the next little while. So it could just be a, a political move to say, look, we're going to keep him off TV for a couple of weeks, put somebody else there, change the message, and we'll see how it goes. You really have to wonder what purpose he serves here. Well, I mean, he's he, like we said, he, he could potentially be uh, purposely trying to just mix up the conversation yeah, because yeah. if public perceptions are always changing, then you can't actually keep your eye on what the real story is. That really seems to be what's happening. All right, Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight to hear Reggie out of Washington, D.C. Always fascinating. Oh, one more on the shutdown. Two deals. Any chance they're going anywhere? 
Absolutely not. I mean, the House has already said they're going to put a bill forward. The Senate is not likely going to take this up. Republicans have no interest in doing anything that the president isn't going to sign. That being said, Republicans have their own bill that's going to go to the floor of the Senate tomorrow. They would need seven Democrats to come on board. It's likely not going to happen, meaning that on Friday, when 800,000 people don't get their paychecks, this shutdown is going to continue. Reggie Giacchini, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The China-Canada saga continues with an update, as the ambassador says, and this is uh, Ambassador John McCallum, Canada's ambassador to China, that uh, the Huawei CFO has a strong case against extradition and uh, kind of laid it all out. To talk more about all of this, Ben Roswell, uh, sorry, Ben Roswell is with us, President Canadian International Council, and with us now. Ben, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's always a pleasure. So your thoughts on how and what has transpired in this story over the last 24 hours? Well, we've we've heard strong indications uh, from Washington that there's likely to be a formal extradition, and that gets us into another phase of this uh, dispute. Um, I don't think it's going to be the last phase. I think we should look at this as a, I don't know if we're playing football and this is the beginning of the second quarter, but we probably have quite a lot of this game left to play. Uh, it looks like uh, America is stiffening its resolve, uh, and because we've got this extradition treaty with uh, with them, we are going to be going ahead with the extradition proceedings that's going to take months and china's made it clear that they are going to keep uh those canadians in detention at least until uh this meng wanzhou person is uh is allowed to uh, to return to china so i think canadians should brace for uh, a really long haul ahead um it appears that now that china has focused more on the united states than they have canada uh, than they are canada at this point whereas up till from december till this point from the uh, arrest of the uh, cfo of huawei uh, right up until now they've been very very aggressively uh, uh attacking canada on this and not really saying anything to the united states uh, why not say something to the United States initially, since this is where all of this originated from? Uh, well, I think that's been a mistake on uh, China's part. It seems to have made a calculation um, that it would fight back against the United States for these ridiculous tariffs that the Trump administration is imposing on them. That they would fight back not with a frontal attack, but by trying to pick off uh, friends or allies of the United States to, to so that it would be um, that it will be more alone uh, in the world. Um, and I think they just picked the wrong country by uh, by uh, focusing on Canada. Maybe they're finally realizing this. I think they took a beating uh, in the Court of International Opinion over the last week uh, with other countries expressing just how alarmed they are about the prospect of their own citizens maybe being uh, maybe being uh, thrown in jail if there's a diplomatic dispute. And um, you know, China is a big, sophisticated country, so maybe it's learning from its mistakes. Uh, I have a hard time understanding that uh, we're all trying very hard to understand China, but they have no idea what, what's going on here or how the laws of our land operate. Did China honestly think they could drive a wedge between allies Canada and the United States and, and side with Russia? Or sorry, China? Well, it is. Uh, they, I mean, they do have a big embassy in Canada and they've got professional diplomats reporting back to them. Um, but there has been... Um, a shift uh, in the way the Chinese government is run. Uh, recently, it's right. become more ideological, a little bit more like echoes of the Maoist uh, era where the Communist Party really kind of dominates uh, everything. I've heard that the foreign ministry is 
increasingly populated by people uh, that have uh, um, their loyalties are much more on the ideological or the or the party side, and so that might be affecting the way that they're analyzing. The foreign ministry um, does not seem to have quite as much um, direct authority uh, relative to other parts of the of the Chinese state, so they might uh, they might be facing other uh, considerations that are uh, that are overriding. Uh, the sensible advice on what Canada is, uh, is like and what c- Canadian decisions might be uh, informed by. Is this all the more reason for us to be cautious of the new sh- uh, new China? Well, we should definitely be cautious of the new China, regardless of uh, of any of this. I mean, this is a uh, a rising power, which is not not necessarily a problem in and of itself. But in just in the last uh, few um, years, uh, there seems to be this. Um, attitude coming out of uh, China um, that it's not prepared to just be equal with other countries that it really wants to dominate. Um, this is not a country that has sort of negotiated alliances as uh, sort of equals to equals like uh, like we have in in uh, in our multilateral institutions, um, but that really wants to assert itself and be in a dominant uh, position. I don't think we need to give up uh, on China, um, but it's certainly showing its uh, it's fangs, and so th- they're trading this as a power game, and we need to treat it as a power game as well. Now, we're not alone in this. It's not like Canada versus China and who, let's see, who prevails. It's uh, whichever country is, uh, is able to build the uh, largest set of alliances um, in order to have the greatest, uh, greatest amount of power. And on that front, the fact that the United States, Canada, uh, most of Western Europe are very much united, puts us in a position of power, and China recognizes that and feels threatened by that. Uh, Canada's ambassador to China, John McCallum, uh, the Canadian press is reporting, said there's a strong legal argument that the Huawei executive can uh, help to make her, uh, to help her to avoid extradition to the United States. Your thought on on what he's saying, I guess he was talking to uh, Chinese reporters. Some are, are, are complaining that there were no other reporters uh, in the room. He said that uh, her lawyer could argue that there's been uh, possible political involvement following the comments by Trump last month, raising questions about the basis of extradition requests by musing in an interview with Reuters about intervening uh, in the case if it would help him strike a trade deal. McCallum also said that she can argue against the extraterritorial aspect of her case and the fact that the fraud allegations against her are related to Iran san- sanctions, which Canada did not sign on to. Your thoughts on his comments? Yeah, so that was a gaffe. Uh, you know, all professionals make mistakes from time to time. The Canadian position has really been quite clear, which is that uh, there's no... Um, the, the executive branch of the government, the prime minister, the foreign minister and ambassadors, etc., don't have uh, an ability to overrule what the courts uh, are doing. And so an ambassador really shouldn't be commenting on what the legal case may or may not be, because that's not... Why didn't, anybody, not, why didn't anybody tell him that? It's not like this guy's a newbie. He's been around the block a few times. So all diplomats, all ambassadors are speaking to two audiences at the same time. They're speaking to the audience in the country they're representing to try and, you know, uh, connect with them and um, establish a bond with them. And they're also they're speaking to their home audience. Uh, the skill in diplomacy is to be able to say the same thing to both audiences and have both audiences kind of agree with you or, to, or for it to resonate. Um, the Chinese ambassador, for example, has not really bothered at all to talk to the Canadian audience. When he calls us white supremacists, 
uh, when he talk, calls us, uh, insinuates that we're doing this just because the United States has told us, he, he must recognize that no Canadians is, is going to take him seriously, that we're going to be offended. He doesn't seem to care. He's just speaking to the Chinese audience back home. Right. I think Ambassador McCollum might be making, now, admittedly, a much less uh, serious uh, error. Like the Chinese ambassador to Ottawa will probably find it difficult for him to be ambassador now for the rest of his period here because he's insulted the Canadian people so grievously. Hmm. Ambassador McCallum has been talking to the Chinese ad, uh, audience uh, and trying to establish some kind of understanding with them and I think may have uh, just overstepped uh, his position a little bit. Uh, he's not obviously pretending that he knows what the legal outcome was, but just by even speculating about it weakens. Uh, well, it sounds as if he's giving them. He sounds as if he's giving them tips on how to approach it legally, which ought, which kind of seems odd considering you know they're about to kill a Canadian. There's two being that have just been scooped off the street, and whether you like Donald Trump or not in his politics, uh, the U.S. is still our ally. I think what he's probably saying is that reminding the Chinese that there is a the rule of law that the courts will make the decision, and the courts will act totally independently. Um, so there is some chance. And, you know, no one outside the court will know one way or the other, but there is obviously some chance that the, the court in British Columbia will decide that the extradition request is not valid. We don't know, and John McCallum doesn't know, but obviously that would help to attenuate the tension, and as he's the ambassador, you know, surrounded by a potentially uh, angry Chinese audience, um, it's obviously a message that the, that audience would like to hear. I just think he probably should have shown more discipline and not commenting in any way on how the court case might go. He went on to say, I think she has some strong arguments that she can make before a judge. Could some not interpret that as him trying to influence our judicial system? I certainly wouldn't interpret it that way, but as I say, it's a gaffe. It's the kind of thing that opens up the the, the Canadian position to, uh, to more scrutiny. Um, I think we just got to keep hammering away that uh, we are a rule of law country and that our courts are independent and they have, uh, there is actually a political stage in the extradition process later on um, where the, uh, the executive branch does get to uh, uh, exercise its opinion on, on whether the extradition should go ahead, but it's not in the court period, which is what uh, Ambassador McCallum seemed to be, uh, seemed to be talking about today. Uh, I think you, we'll get over it. I'm, I'm not sure, as I say, the Canadian, the the Chinese ambassador in Ottawa will be able to recover from his error. But at the end of the day, you know, we really need these diplomats out there. This is a... Yeah, I guess the a, point was, was I, I guess my point is the Chinese ambassador insulted us in, in Canada. Uh, McCallum uh, was doing his best not to do the same to his uh, Chinese reporters he was addressing. That being said, uh, has he compromised Canada's position uh, with the United States or even the view uh, of the citizenry that he seems to be giving them advice? This is an ambassador who's always shown um, a great deal of uh, affinity for China, a great deal of sympathy for uh, for the, uh, the Chinese country and its uh, its people. It's probably one reason why he was chosen to be uh, ambassador there. Um, you know, it's not entirely consistent with our position, but I'm for one, I'm glad that there are some people on at least on our side. I wish there were more on the Chinese side that we're reaching out across the aisle to say, "Listen, guys, uh, this doesn't need to be quite so." Uh, disastrous. Like there is a there's a process that can be followed. Let's all just let cooler heads prevail. And so I think the ambassador's 
heart was in the right place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just need to. Do you um, think we have done enough to calm these waters? I think so. You know, it's been a pretty measured approach. Uh, when you compare sort of word for word what the Chinese government is saying and what the Canadian government uh, is saying, there's quite a lot of restraint uh, in our side. I mean, we are we would be totally justified in being furious. About Especially when you think of the conditions that those two Canadians are being held in compared to what the Huawei CFO is being held in. Yes, and then a potential application of the death penalty, which, of course, we consider a violation of human rights, regardless of the charge. Like, the state does not have the right to execute uh, people. So they're proposing to execute a Canadian citizen, regardless of what he does. That is a uh, that is a very serious matter for Canadians to get very upset about. And yet, um, I think our Prime Minister and our Minister, Minister Friedland have been really quite strategic, uh, quite firm in their position, but also leaving open the door that when China decides to stop picking on us, we can pick up where we were before. Now, whether that's going to be possible after all this water goes under the bridge, uh, I don't know. But I think um, uh, I don't think the Canadian government can be faulted for for not trying to manage this in as uh, calm and professional a manner as possible. Do you think that the Huawei CFO will be extradited to the United States? There's lots that are saying that there's a good possibility that she won't. Well, that would uh, if I were to answer that, I'd be making the same mistake that Ambassador McCallum made, right? Yeah, but you're not I'm an ambassador. But you're not an ambassador. <laughs> you're just, no, but you're... I'm also not a legal, uh, a legal expert, and uh, frankly, these are sort of complicated uh, procedures. So mm-hmm. I think I'll stick to my knitting, which is the sort of diplomatic <laughs> Uh, context. What I do know is that it's going to take a long time. I do know that there's also a, uh, some portion, some phase where um, the executive branch of the Canadian government gets to uh, to have its say, but that's still several months uh, from here. So there's there's a bunch of off ramps, in other words, where the the extradition case could potentially um, be resolved. I do want to um, I do want to your listeners to be aware though that this dispute might even last longer yeah. after Meng Wanzhou is released. Uh, it might be that China's determined to punish us um, just because of our uh, alliance with the United States and it's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's effort to try and split away uh, America's allies. Won't that and just so they harm? They want to make an example of us. Won't that just harm what they're trying to do in the first place? I mean, this all started uh, in and around uh, Huawei and, and their involvement in the backbone of our 5G uh, in, uh, uh, industry, and some questioning whether uh, we should be giving them that kind of control. It's like we were the only ones supporting them. Now they're kicking us all around here. It certainly won't help their case if they want to maintain good relations and strong trade exchanges with uh, North America, uh, Western Europe, much of Eastern Europe, much of Latin America, any part of the, uh, any country that's uh, committed to the rule of law, human rights and democracy uh, will be very worried about this. China might be calculating that, you know, maybe it'll just focus on, uh, on other countries that uh, aren't so focused on, aren't so hung up on democracy, human rights and the rule of law and, and sort of divide the world into two. I think that would be really short-sighted and really dangerous, um, but it's hard to know. You know, there, there, there seems to be kind of a Cold War mentality setting in hmm. in China that maybe the world is sort of fundamentally divided already, and they're just gathering their forces for a, a confrontation that they see as inevitable with the United States and its, uh, and its partners. That so, would be really regrettable, but it wouldn't be the first time in history that a great power has adopted that attitude. 
So has the has China now focused its attention on the United States? Where, where does that leave Canada? Will will these cases be put on the back burner? Does the I mean that person is set to be uh, Schellenberg is, is uh, I guess supposed uh, sentence supposed to be a sentence to death this week? I believe that was the ten day he had ten days to appeal and and that's running out. Uh, does does that still happen? How do Canadians view if they kill that man? And uh, and still hold the other two Canadians, even though this has moved on to the U.S. courts. So I actually think the next big thing to watch for certainly the Schellenberg case should be uh, should be top of mind, and we should be very concerned about his uh, his fate and be pressing very hard for his sentence to be commuted to uh, something less severe. But there is a Chinese delegation traveling to Washington uh, next week. It's not a very high level. Uh, delegation as far as I know, but there are probably going to be some um, quiet discussions between the U.S. government and the Chinese government, and uh, that might influence the, at least the, Canada, the U.S.-China dispute, and then we'll see if there's any knock-on effects for uh, the dispute with, uh, with, uh, with Canada. What does the Canadian government hope to happen here? I mean, you can't go back on these things. We are where we are. What does the Canadian government hope? Does the Canadian government hope that the U.S. just stops this and gets us out of a bind? Uh, you know, do we press on and see what the case is against the, the, the Huawei CFO before we make those kinds of of decisions? How is, is Canada just trying to get out of this in one piece, or, or are they actually showing loyalty to one over the other here? Well, it's it's now been a year and a half since I was in the government, and I don't even live in Ottawa anymore, so I really don't know what the thinking is inside the government. I could say what I believe Canadians should should be doing with this. Obviously, we should be very focused on Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig being uh, freed and returned to Canada, Robert Schellenberg not being uh, not being executed. But this is uh, this has been a big wake up call for the nature of the Chinese government under Xi Jinping and the way that it approaches the world and the way it approaches its international relationships. And to the extent that there's been sort of two camps in Canadian thinking about China, with some people thinking we should engage further, perhaps even negotiate a free trade, and others saying we should really be drawing back and protecting ourselves from the growing power and hostility of China, that latter camp is uh, has definitely got the wind in its sails as a result of this relationship. And all Canadians really should be thinking very carefully about uh, whether China is ready and willing to be a partner, or whether they're determined to be a threat when this, uh, to countries like ours. When this first started, and the CFO from Huawei was arrested, uh, it seemed as if Canada was on an island. There was even people protesting in Vancouver to let her go, uh, and it seemed to be a, a long haul. Uh, and soon after the detainment of the two Michaels, as, as you mentioned, uh, it, then people started to listen. But even then, it was a while before other countries would speak out. Now, appear it appears that that is happening. Uh, China, the ambassador said in that in that press conference that you know Canada should stop whining about this in public and shouldn't bring it up at, at uh, in Switzerland and such. Um, that being said, how has the world viewed this and are our allies in the rest of the world uh, sticking up for Canada and do they understand what has happened? Uh, and is it, and is it actually the opposite to what China is saying? So I want to start by answering that question by providing a little context. If uh, there was a dispute between, say, Germany and Italy um, and each country was turning to us and to say, hey, Canada, can you support us? 
the, va- mm. the most in the vast majority of cases, we would say no because we're friends with Germany, mm. we're friends with Italy. It's a bilateral dispute. That's the initial instinct of basically every country in the world mm. when there's a dispute between Canada and China. So in that context, to have uh, something like thirty countries um, now come out, if you include all of the European Union, come out on Canada's side is really extraordinary. That that just doesn't happen in international diplomacy for third parties to take a side like that. And I think it shows how isolated China. Uh, has become because of its uh, because of its aggressive uh, behavior, and I think you're also seeing it now in the tone of a co- tone coming out from China, like the, <laughs> for for them to actually instruct Canada not to chat with other countries and to try and convince other countries of our position, like basically not to conduct yeah. our own diplomacy. <laughs> I mean, it's so ridiculous that it shows that I think they feel like they're they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. So I think at least on that front, I'm. Um, uh, Mark won in our ledger for um, the results of Canadian diplomacy. We have not yet succeeded in getting Michael Stavor and Michael Kovrig uh, free, and I don't think we're going to anytime soon. But uh, I do think that there's been some deft handling of the diplomatic dynamic of this relationship. Ben Roswell has been with us, President, Canadian International Council. Fascinating discussion, Ben. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.